Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. We live in perilous times. There are threats that we can see. Terrorists, both foreign and domestic, with knives and guns, and poles with flags, attached. Other things are huge automobiles and trucks with and without drivers. Then there are the threats that we cannot see. COVID-19, anyone? After reading the book that I will mention in a moment, the biggest threat that we cannot see and what runs everything that we are dependent upon, all our devices from smartphones, appliances, thermostats, computers, printers, our cars, and everything that makes our lives easier and livable, the ones and zeros that make up the software that everything runs on. If that you think that I am trying to scare you, you are right. Unless we change the way we have done things forever, we are doomed. My guest today may or not mean to scare you, but then again, maybe she does. Nicole Perroth is the author of This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends. She is an award-winning cybersecurity journalist for the New York Times, where her work has been optioned for both film and television. She is a regular lecturer at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and a graduate of Princeton University and Stanford University. She lives with her family in the Bay Area, but increasingly prefers life off the grid in their cabin in the woods. I am very pleased to have with us today, Nicole Perlroth. Hi, Nicole. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And let me just start by saying that Mendocino is the most beautiful county in the country. And every time I, I go up north, I you know I do live in the Bay Area, so I get up there a fair bit, and I just love it up there. So well, happy I, to do this. I do too. Uh, I moved here 26 years ago, and I don't want to be anywhere else. Yeah, I see why. Okay, let me start you off here. We often hear about groups of foreign governments that have penetrated what we lay people thought was impenetrable our cybersecurity defenses, should we be scared or terrified? Well, I think we need to be sufficiently scared to do something about it. We've had a series of near-miss cyber attacks. Uh, one as recently as Friday, just outside Tampa, where we were having the Super Bowl last weekend. Hackers got into a water treatment facility and upped the amount of lye, L-Y-E, in the water um, from something like 100 parts per million to 11,000 parts per million. And had they not caught it in time, had an engineer not noticed his cursor moving around his screen, um, you know, that could have badly sickened 15,000 people in this tiny town outside Tampa. And I don't have to tell you how terrifying it would be if 15,000 people had to go to the hospital uh, when we're already under siege from the pandemic. So, it was a close call. It was a near miss, but it was another near miss and a series of near misses that we have had uh, here in the United States. You know, we have had just in the past seven years, we've had Iranian hackers get into the locks uh, at a dam. We have had Russians get caught with their fingers on the switches at our power plants, and they've also breached nuclear plants. We all saw what happened uh, with Russian hackers in 2016. When they got into our voter rolls, we've had Russian cyber criminals hold our hospitals ransomware and wipe out patient records and 
treatment record. So just recently I covered an attack on a hospital in Vermont where chemo patients uh, couldn't get their chemotherapy because all of the complicated protocols for what they had already been given and still needed to get had been wiped out. So with every new attack, it seems we're starting to feel this otherwise invisible threat uh, in a much scarier way. And instead of pausing and locking up these systems, uh, we just continue to roll them out. We are plugging in new things, devices, pacemakers, insulin pumps, water treatment facilities, refrigerators, uh, dishwashers into the Internet at a speed of 127 new devices per second. And so in writing this book, it was my goal to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, all of these access points that we have been creating can easily be exploited by hackers. And we've already seen nation states and cyber criminals show intent to hack them. So let's pause here and rethink fundamentally how we're locking up our systems and how we're protecting our critical infrastructure. Well, that poses the question, are we? Mm -hmm. Well, the thing is, a big company like PG&E is going to have the security resources and budgets to put in place complex security protocols, and they're going to know that they're a big target, and so they do hire some of the best and brightest security engineers. But the targets we really worry about are targets like the water facility in Oldsmar, Florida, that was hit on Friday. You know, a small municipality doesn't have the big budgets or staff of a PG&E, uh, necessarily has to have uh, contractors and supervisors remote into their system to make sure that the chemicals and the water are balanced and pressure gauges and temperature gauges are all working smoothly. And so we've done that because it's cost-effective to essentially outsource this supervision and management to contractors miles away. But those access points also present lots of opportunities for hackers. You know, I mentioned this um, a minute ago, but in 2013, we caught this Iranian hacker toiling with the locks at the Bowman Avenue Dam. And I tell this story in the book, but Michael Daniel, who is then White House Cybersecurity Coordinator, got the proverbial 3 a.m. phone call from John Brennan, who was then CIA director, saying they're in the Bowman Dam. We have hackers inside the Bowman Dam. Yes? Oh, can you hear me? Hello? Hello? I'm sorry. I just lost my headphones for a moment. Oh, okay. (laughs) Are you okay? Yep, I'm fine now. I'm sorry. I missed that last thing that you said. That's okay. So she's saying, you know, these are the small targets we worry about. And in 2013... Uh, we had this breach of the Bowman Dam, and I tell the story in the book about how Michael Daniel, then White House Cybersecurity Coordinator, got the proverbial 3 a.m. phone call from John Brennan, who was then CIA director, um, scared and yelling, they're in the dam, they're in the Bowman Dam. Now, it turns out we have two Bowman Dams in the United States. One is in Oregon and holds back, you know, tons of water and had that dam Um, been infiltrated and had a hacker unlocked 
the dates on that dam, you would have been looking at a cyber-induced tsunami. But actually, an Iranian hacker had gotten into the other Bowman Dam, the Bowman Avenue Dam, which is about 30 miles outside Manhattan, um, and holds back a babbling brook. So had he unlocked the gates, it wouldn't have done much. But, you know, these are the targets we worry about. We've seen hackers inside these systems. Um, you know, an attack of our water treatment facility would really be a silent killer. And we never, ever thought when we were uh, making these systems remotely accessible, we thought, can we make this remotely accessible? We never thought, should we make these remotely accessible? And so I hope the book is a wake-up call that people start thinking about security when they're designing and configuring these systems. So uh, Trump eliminated the position of cybersecurity czar. How much damage to or intrusion into our systems might have occurred until today? Well, any cybersecurity that happened under the Trump administration really happened in spite of, not because of the administration. As you pointed out, they dismissed their cybersecurity coordinator um, when Chris Krebs, the, the head of CISA, which is the cybersecurity agency within the Department of Homeland Security um, worked on securing the elections and ensuring we had paper records of, of our vote. He did that almost under cover of darkness, because anytime anyone brought up election security at the White House, I was told they were, quote, given the Heisman and told to never bring it up again. So what happened during the Trump administration is that most of our work in cybersecurity was on the offense side of the house. We enabled Cyber Command at the Pentagon to conduct attacks. Um, the NSA continued with its espionage programs. And what Paul Nakasone, the director of the NSA and the head of Cyber Command, has said is that he wants us to practice a philosophy of active defense. Active defense is a you know, military strategy that goes back as far as Sun Tzu and George Washington when they said the best defense is a good offense. And in hacking, what that means is that we believed that by hacking into enemy networks, we could glean an early alert system on whatever they were planning and how they were staging these attacks before they hit American networks. Um, the problem with this is that we missed one of the longest-running Russian attacks on our systems in recent history, and that is what we're calling the SolarWinds hack on um, many federal agencies that use software called SolarWinds, which is made by a Texas company, and was used for Russians as a backdoor into the State Department, the Treasury, the Justice Department, the Energy Department, its nuclear labs, the Department of Homeland Security, the very agency charged with keeping us safe. Uh, and we didn't find out about those attacks from some giant NSA hack or intelligence feat. We learned about it because FireEye, a security company, discovered that it was hacked and then in the course of unwinding its own attack, realized that the Russian hackers had come in through solar winds, and then realized that they were a small part of a much larger operation. Um, when I heard some people, uh, that some people were advocating online voting, I yelled out loud, no, no, no. And that was long right. before I read your book. If everyone reads your book, 
this is how they tell me the world ends, then will they realize that nothing in a computer is safe for very long? Yes, I think so. I mean, one thing I learned on this beat is anything connected to the Internet, even if it's not connected to the Internet, is accessible. Um, If it has a plug, you know, there is a way to get inside of it. Now, I don't want to terrify people and, you know, have everyone go out and rip out their cable boxes and all of their microwaves and and such. Um, You know, it really matters. What they say in the industry is, what is your threat model? So, you know, what do you have of interest that hackers might want access to? In my case, it's my sources. You know, I do a lot of these sensitive national security stories. And I, unfortunately, a lot of people will only talk to me if they have under the condition that they can do so anonymously. And that makes me a target because people might want to find out who I'm talking to. So when I meet with really sensitive sources, I leave my devices at home. You know, I had one source where we had a standing appointment. We met up on the first Tuesday or so at the beginning of every month for a dim sum appointment. We didn't even email about it. We just showed up. We didn't bring our devices. I just brought pen and paper. And I never put his or her name down on my notepad. I mean, those are the links I would go to to protect my sources. And then I use things like encrypted messaging apps and um, et cetera. But, you know, for most people, it's your credit card information, your personal data, your password. So for you, you know, just protecting yourself is all the boring things you always hear about, like creating different passwords for different sites so that if someone steals the password, to your Gmail account, they can't use that to break into your online Bank of America account. Um, it means turning on two-factor authentication where it's offered. You know, it's a service that will text you a second password anytime someone is logging into your account from a strange device and they can't get in without that password. Those things are going to knock out probably 70 to 80% of the cyber threats you face. Um, and then, you know, if you're a government, it's not going to stop the solar wind hack. But for most Americans, just doing those things and not clicking on random malicious links is going to spare you from about two-thirds of the threats out there. So um, should we still be buying antivirus software and erect the best firewalls that we can afford? I mean, it depends who you are. I think these days a lot of us rely on... Uh, Google, you know, Gmail accounts. We rely on Microsoft. We rely on Amazon Web Services, maybe. Those companies have very sophisticated security protocols in place. I talk a little bit in the book about how they've essentially poached some of the best people from the NSA and its counterparts in the UK, the GCHQ, and in Australia and Canada to lead their security. They're really good. So if most of your sensitive data is on your Gmail account, uh, you know, you can rest assured that they have better security. It's, it's better secured in the Google Cloud so long as you have a strong password and have switched on two-factor authentication than it would be if you tried to, you know, cobble together your own email domain and your own firewall and that kind of thing. Um, but... One thing is, and antivirus software is a good idea, except one of the things I unfortunately learned in the course of writing this book is that antivirus software is among the most targeted software by nation states because 
what antivirus software does on your computer is it's constantly looking for any kind of anomalous behavior, malicious behavior. And to do that, it logically entails that it has access to most files and applications on your computer. So it actually presents a really good entry point for hackers and nation states because once they get into your antivirus software, uh, they can pretty much access anything on your computer. And also, it's really difficult to eradicate um, you know, a malicious antivirus uh, software attack because it does have such deep access to your computer that you know, simply um, you know, wiping your hard drive might not be enough to kick hackers out in the case of that attack. So the, uh, the, the ideas that you gave us just a few minutes ago about uh, having a double uh, password, about not clicking on something that could possibly infect your computer, those are the things that will keep us from being infected but not necessarily having antivirus software. Is there any other alternative? Sorry, sorry, say the last part again. Sorry, you just cut out a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, So I said that you had given us some tips a few minutes ago uh, about how to protect ourselves, and then when we talked about antivirus software, you said that is an entry point for people trying to Mm -hmm. attack our computers. So if we take Mm -hmm. those other steps, is there anything else we should do in lieu of uh, antivirus software? Well, I think just the things I mentioned, you know, use different passwords for different sites. You can use a password manager, although I am suspicious of password managers because I've written several articles about how password managers were breached. But I think for the average American, you know, use a password manager or just write down your passwords on a sticky note and keep it somewhere safe in your home because it's much easier for people to break into your accounts or your computer than it is to break into your home these days. Um, And then turn on two-factor authentication. Definitely do that. Click on, don't, sorry, do not click on any links from strangers. You know, one of the most common tactics these days is to send a malicious email through a fake UPS shipping notification, Mm. your tracking notification to say, hey, we've tracked your package. Here's the link. Well, in a lot of cases, those links are unfortunately hackers. So, you know, always check, you know, click on the sender's name and look at the email address. And if it says UPS.com, then okay, you know, you might be able to click on that. But if it has anything funny in it, then don't click on it. Um, So it's little things like that, just common sense things, really boring things, um, which are so critical in wiping out most of the threats you you would face. So... um In your book, you spend a lot of time talking about uh, invisible backdoors that have sci-fi names like Zero Days or O-Days. And for the unindoctrinated, and I'm going to read a bit from your book, Zero Days offer digital superpowers. They are a cloak of invisibility. And for spies and cyber criminals, the more invisible you can make yourself, the more power you will have. At the most basic level, A zero-day is a software or hardware flaw for which there is no existing patch. They got their name because, as with patient zero in an epidemic, when a zero-day flaw is discovered, 
software and hardware companies have zero days to come up with the, a defense. Until the vendor, vendor learns of the flaw in their system, comes up with a fix, disseminates its patch to users around the globe, and users run their software updates, and I'll take a moment here uh, to read this other disclaimer. Dear readers of this book and listeners of this program, run your <laughs> software updates or swap out and otherwise mitigate the vulnerable hardware. Everyone who relies on the affected system is vulnerable. I think that's good advice on your part. And just so you know, I've started changing all of my passwords to long and different passwords. It's taking going to take me oh, a long God. time. Well, you know what I do is I write down my favorite movie quotes. Huh. And, you know, they're semi-long movie quotes. And then I'll replace the eyes with a one or an exclamation point. You know, you come up with your own little code. And then you can just write down, you know, Google, and then whatever the movie is that you use the, pot, the, the, um, the quote from. And usually you'll remember what your favorite quote is from that movie. And then all you need to write down is sort of what your um, little coding convention is. So that's just a little trick for me. Hmm, good. And uh, for those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Politics, a Love Story. Our guest today is Nicole Perlroth, and we're talking about her new book, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends. And I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. We have a limited amount of time today, so uh, what I wanted to do, if we had the full time, was to get some of your suggestions about how you, what you see for the future, and is there anything that will make us do what you and other experts suggest we do? So, you know, I, my suggestion can really be summed up as one thing, which is stop leaving, our, stop leaving us more vulnerable. At the individual level, that means some of the suggestions I've already made about using different passwords and turning on two-factor authentication, not clicking on links, running your software updates. At the business level, that means designing your systems and software um, with the assumption that hackers will try to get into it. And the more you test your software, the more you open it up to hackers to test and prod it and poke at it before you roll it out into Teslas and smart fridges and water treatment facilities, the safer the rest of us will be. In the industry, they call this security by design, and it's a philosophy of building it like it's broken. You know, if you build something like it's broken, then you're constantly going to be wrapping additional protections around things. At a hospital, if you're building your system, it might be smart to think that if there are these ransomware attacks that are wiping out patient records, Put your patient records on a different system or server than the rest of your IT administrative network. If you're a nuclear plant, put the controls to the nuclear plant on a completely closed-off, separated system that is completely segregated from your employee IT networks. Um, so making those decisions will be critical. And then at the government level, for too long, when the government would find zero days, these holes or flaws in commonly used software like Microsoft Windows, 
which we all use whether we know it or not, not just for communications, but for our critical infrastructure in our power grid and nuclear plant. When they would find a hole in Microsoft Windows, they would typically hold on to it to preserve their hacking, espionage, and battlefield preparations because that flaw could be very useful in the event they needed to drop a cyber weapon like we did in Iran back in 2007 when we used these holes in Microsoft Windows and Siemens software to take out Iran's uranium centrifuges. Um, And we've used these holes for espionage and counterintelligence. The problem is that Americans, and increasingly our critical infrastructure, rely on that same vulnerable software. So for every zero day the government decides not to tell Microsoft or Apple or Siemens about, that's a zero day that could be discovered and found by other nation states or cyber criminals and used to destructive effect on Americans. So when I say stop leaving us more vulnerable, my message to government is when you find a hole in a widely used software like Microsoft Windows, tell Microsoft about it so they can fix it, patch it, and roll out a software update to the rest of us. And for too long, we were holding on to these things. In one case, we know because the NSA itself was hacked and its tools were dumped online in 2016 and 2017, that there was a Microsoft Windows flaw, a zero day, that the NSA knew how to exploit and was using for its espionage programs, but they held on to it for five years. Hmm. And in that time, they got hacked. It was picked up by North Korea and then by Russia in two separate cyber attacks. The Russian attack ended up being the most destructive, costly attack we have seen here in the United States. All told, that that attack cost $10 billion to its victims. It wiped out vaccine supplies at Merck. That year, Merck had to tap into the CDC's emergency supplies of the Gardasil vaccine because their vaccine production lines were paralyzed by that attack. It hit Pfizer. It hit FedEx. It hit patient records in rural hospitals. So it was a very, very serious attack enabled by this Microsoft flaw that the NSA knew about, held on to for more than five years, and never told Microsoft about until the very last minute. And by that point, it was too late. No one had patched their systems by the time North Korea and Russia picked it up and used it to brutal effect. So, you know, the it's almost like climate change, really, the cyber threat landscape is, because we're not going to solve it unless we make a decision collectively as a society to stop leaving ourselves more vulnerable. And that's why I wrote this book. I tried to write it in a really accessible way. I really wrote it for my mom (laughs) so she would have some concept of what I've been doing with my life for the last 10 years. But I really wanted to take the reader by the hand and show them just how vulnerable we are, where these vulnerabilities are, where the incentives lie, because for too long the incentives have been towards adding more vulnerability, not not securing Americans, so that it could be, um, we could put these discussions and debates in people like your listeners' laps, so we're not just outsourcing these discussions to the NSA or to, you know, the people who weaponized flaws in our code or the people who are selling these flaws and weaponized code to foreign governments. You know, for too long, these conversations have been left to the people who have the most incentive to do nothing. And unfortunately, the losers have always been the rest of us. And so I hope that this book kind of puts the 
the vocabulary and the knowledge in people's laps so that we as Americans can have these discussions before we have the catastrophic cyber 9-11 or cyber Pearl Harbor that some people have warned about for years. So I see uh, we have two points of a, of a problem here. One is, are we in the situation where the manufacturers of these products and the software are, uh, the, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Companies are releasing products that are not tested for vulnerabilities enough and have gaping holes that are easily found because they want to be the first to market. They should be looking for perfection first, not just okay. And then we have 17 or so uh, intelligence agencies, and they're all trying to weaponize various things so that they can get a jump. But that's offense. And what you pointed out in your book, we spend more time, effort, and money on offense than we do on defense. That's right. I mean, for every 100 people working offense at the NSA, there's only been one person working on defense. When the best and brightest engineers go into government to work on security, often the most exciting uh, mission is at the NSA or at the Pentagon Cyber Command, where they do our cyber attacks on, on our adversaries. The most exciting jobs are not at the Department of Homeland Security, where they're focused on locking these systems up. And, you know, the phrase I hear over and over again is it's always been more fun in cyber to be a pirate than be in the Coast Guard. You know, defense is really grueling. It can be really boring. It's a lot of reminding people to change their passwords and turn on two-factor authentication. Offense is exciting. You're, you're probing technology. You're finding ways in. You're breaking into the adversary system. You're reading their emails. You know, in some cases, you're breaking into their critical infrastructure to sort of set the battlefield in case of some geopolitical conflict. And, you know, also a lot of great security engineers these days have far more lucrative job opportunities in Silicon Valley at places like Facebook and Google and Amazon, Microsoft, which are not technically in Silicon Valley, but I still always count them um, in big tech. And where they can get paid a lot more than if they go work at the Department of Homeland Security. So from a talent pool perspective, this really puts the United States at a disadvantage because when you think about it, in places like China, often we see some of the most sophisticated attacks not come from the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. They come from contractors that work for China's Ministry of State Security. So in China, they will identify the country's best hackers and security engineers, and maybe they are working by day at Tencent or Baidu. But if they have the skills, China will tap them on the shoulder and say, tonight you're coming and moonlighting for us. Um, same thing in Russia. You know, Russia has always had this tacit agreement with Russia's Russian cyber criminals that there's only two rules to their trade. One is you don't hack inside the motherland. In other words, you don't hack Russian targets. And in so many cases, particularly with ransomware attacks, we find out later that the code was specifically designed to avoid computers that use uh, Cyrillic language keyboards. In other words, it was specifically designed to avoid Russian computers. And then the other rule that's in Russia that I write about in the book is when the state comes calling for a favor, you do whatever it asks. So we've seen these attacks out of Russia, for instance, there was one on Yahoo a couple of years ago where they were ultimately able to pin it on four people, two of whom were Russian cyber criminals 
who broke in, got access to everyone's email accounts. And then the other two were Russian FSB agents, the successor agency to the KGB, which basically their involvement was, you know, let us know if you find the email account of someone who works in the White House and then give us access. So that's sort of how it works in Russia. And we don't do that here. <laughs> we don't um, hire cyber criminals. We, we tend to prosecute them. Uh, we don't tap someone on the shoulder at Google and say, hey, you look pretty good. You're coming to go work for us tonight and hacking Iran. You know, we just don't do that here. And so we are at a skills disadvantage. Now, that said, the United States is still the world's top cyber superpower. No one has ever pulled off anything close to the cyber attack that the United States and Israel pulled off on an Iranian nuclear facility in 2007. The reason I cover a lot of Russian and Chinese and North Korean and cybercrime attacks uh, and not a lot of NSA attacks is not because I want to avoid covering the NSA. I would cover them just um, with just as much energy. It's just that no one ever finds the NSA attacks because they're so good. They're so stealthy. Um, they're so hard to catch. They truly are the best in this space, although you know Israel is up there, China, Russia are up there too, but nowhere close still to the United States. That said, after everyone found out what was possible in the cyber domain, after the code from the U.S.-Israeli attack on Iran got out, every other government, possibly with the exception of Antarctica, <laughs> has gotten into this space. And so our lead is slipping. You know, allies have caught up. Adversaries continue to close the capabilities gap. And we are also the most targeted nation now. We see more attacks here than most any other country. And we're the most vulnerable because we're so digitized, because we have been hooking up our critical infrastructure online for so many years without thinking about the potential for blowback. So I know you said that you have to leave very soon. Uh, do we have a minute left? or? Yes, yes, we do. We have two more minutes. Okay, so I, I just wanted to point out quickly, I, as I said, I had 12 pages of notes and, uh, uh, and quotes. In uh, the 2016 election, U.S. election, Russia definitely interfered for sure, and you know that by speaking to all of these cyber people so that's for sure. Uh, and then uh, Obama warned Putin face-to-face -face at a, a conference that they both attended that if Russia persisted in interfering in U.S. elections, America had the ability to destroy the Russian economy. Is that true? Yes, yes. Obama, um, both Obama and I believe Brennan, both uh, you know, issued a strongly worded warning, Obama to Putin and Brennan to his counterpart in Russian intelligence. And I don't know what the specific threat was, but the one that has often been discussed is that if Russia had taken it any further, we would have released everything we had on the corruption among Russian oligarchs hmm. um, and, you know, Putin and their business dealings and their finances, which is, you know, Russia's soft spot, because, you know, if, if everything was known about, you know, Putin's cronyism, then 
you know, they would have a lot to fear in terms of, you know, a possible overthrow of the government or the protests we're seeing around the Navalny arrest right now, which is, you know, Putin's um, chink in the armor. So um, that was the warning. And perhaps that's why Russia didn't go any further. Although I don't know. I mean, I think ultimately the conclusion was not that Russia was helping to elect Trump so much as they were hoping to damage Hillary Clinton and effectively neuter her presidency so that by the time she took office, she'd be so badly damaged and American politics would be so um, divided, um, so so, uh, vitriolic that, you know, her presidency would be ineffective. Now, Trump won. Um, It's still, you know, it's still difficult to tell how how many people switched their votes to third parties like Jill Stein and, um, you know, how many people switched their vote to Trump or didn't show up to the polls in 2016. Um, but clearly by the time Trump was elected, I mean, you know, the, and the American public was so badly divided. The public discourse was so vitriolic that in many ways, you know, Putin had already succeeded. So, you know, going forward, I think it's interesting that Russia did not uh, actually interfere with the vote count or hack into the voter rolls as they did in 2016 this time. And the argument I make in the book, and I was really speed writing at the end there um, to try and get everything in from the election into the book. But what I said was, you know, when you think about those images that came out in the days after the election, people outside the vote counting centers in Philadelphia, the heart of our democracy, yelling, stop the count, and threatening poll workers with death threats just for doing their jobs. I mean, that visual alone was probably far beyond Putin's wildest dreams. So I I don't think he necessarily figured he wanted to take the risk to interfere in our election because in some ways his work was done and we were now doing to ourselves what he set out to do in 2016. Um, and now, you know, we discovered that the Russians weren't targeting our elections, but they were targeting our, our government agencies. And that's the attack we're unwinding now. So during the Cold War, it never turned into a hot war because there was the fear of mutually assured destruction. And after what Obama told Putin, is that a possibility going forward that there is this possibility of a mutually assured destruction for all of these bad actors out there that if we are still the superpower in cyber warfare, they would fear us if they really pissed us off enough. Well, it's interesting. I mean, definitely we've followed this policy of digital mutually assured destruction. You know, we've caught Russians inside our grid. So what did we do? Well, over the last few years, my colleague David Sanger and I have reported that Cyber Command has been hacking into the Russian grid and making a loud show of it. You know, when we went to go do that story, we contacted the National Security Council and said, here's what we're about to publish. Do you have any problems with this? And typically with that kind of story, you would see a lot of pushback from the government. They would tell us that if we publish something like that, we might have blood on our hands. There would be conversations to be had. But in this case, they said, we have no problem. (laughs) Mm. We have no problem with you publishing this, which was just a sign that we wanted the Russians to know. 
that we were in their electrical grid so that if they turned off the power here, we would turn around and do the same thing to them. Now, the problem is, <laughs> we where does this end? You know, we have effectively enshrined the power grid, the thing that powers our lives and our economy and our transportation and our health care, everything. You know, we basically enshrined this as a legitimate target. And I don't know how smart it is to pursue a strategy of mutually assured destruction in cyberspace where these aren't weapons. You know, the barrier to entry is much lower. Anyone with a laptop and, a, and skills is in the game here. You know, you don't need a uranium stockpile to pull off a cyber attack of mass destruction. And when we do these attacks, once discovered, and this has happened on several occasions, the enemy can simply take the code that they've picked up on their own systems, analyze it, reverse engineer it, dissect it, retrofit it, and turn it back on us. And that has happened in too many occasions. The other thing is these attacks, have a, cyber attacks, have a lot of collateral damage. You know, when Russia pulled off this attack against Ukraine, it didn't just hit Ukraine. It, did, it hit anyone who did business in Ukraine or even had a single remote employee in Ukraine. And that is the attack I mentioned earlier that boomeranged on Pfizer and Merck and um, you know, even Cadbury chocolate factories in Tasmania and hospitals. And so, you know, it, it mutually assured destruction does not work as neatly in the digital realm. I wanna... And I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, finish your thought. Oh, no, that's it. I, I wanted to end this uh, conversation on a high note rather than a low note. And I want to make reference <laughs> to your description of the Ukrainian meal that you ate. I enjoyed Uh-oh. your description of this <laughs> Ukrainian dish that you had, which was meat encased of some kind of fatty jello. Mm-hmm. I thought I that know. was I very amusing. Bad. I I apologize to every Ukrainian listening that I compared Veroniki to Jello, but um, <laughs> it does look like Jello and it jiggles like Jello. And you know, like I said, I wanted this to be a really accessible book. It so, certainly was. Um, yeah. Okay. I, well, thank you so much for having me. And well, let me uh, and just I hope introduce you one last time. Uh, you've been listening okay. to Nicole Perlroth talking about her latest book. This is how they tell me the world ends. And it is a stem winder, as it's been uh, quoted somewhere on the cover. Uh, I think this is worthwhile reading. And if you read mysteries or thrillers, you're going to enjoy this because she writes in a punchy style that's really easy to understand. So thank you, Nicole. Uh, I'm glad for the time that you were able to give us. I'm sorry that you couldn't go the whole hour because I had pages and pages yet to ask you about. But thank you very much. Well, I'm glad we made it 47 minutes, 45 minutes. So, Um, no, it was a real delight. Thank you so much. Good. Oh, and just so you know, uh, I have interviewed two other New York Times uh, writers, uh, Carl Hulse and David Enrich. Oh, yeah, I love Carl. Oh, I love them both. Yes, well. Carl is is so funny. Uh, you give me lots of stuff to uh, to read and talk about. So thank you very much, and uh, keep on going promoting your book because I'm sure it's going to do very well. Okay, thank you so much. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye-bye. And that book is 
this is how they tell me the world ends. So uh, listen for it, look for it. Uh, this is a really good book, and Nicole has been very busy uh, promoting it. Uh, so I've uh, made a, an executive decision. I'm going to try, uh, because I had 12 pages of uh, notes and quotes, as I put it, uh, there was a lot to quote in her book and a lot of questions to ask, and since she had to leave early, I'll try to start. So here we go. Uh, in 2014, Russian hackers started to lay waste to Ukraine's systems. Why are they still standing today? Because Russia didn't intend to kill the country itself. They just wanted to punish Ukraine uh, because uh, they got in a president that was not friendly to Putin, number one. Number two, they had developed all these new tools, and who best to try them on but somebody you don't necessarily like and could use some disciplining. And that's what they did. Uh, then uh, we have, uh, no matter how good a company, a country, or an individual's cyber defenses are, social engineering, when deployed very deftly, almost always finds a way to circumvent it. And what do I mean by social engineering? So somebody wants to find out uh, the inside uh, email address of a particular person they want to target. Well, if you just call up and ask for, for it, you're not going to get it. But if you say, oh, this is uh, Joe's buddy, and he asked me to call you to get it because he forgot, and then the, the first person you speak to may not necessarily give it to you. But then you keep on trying and getting different people, and eventually somebody who's just filling in temporarily doesn't know and gives out the sacred information that they shouldn't be giving out. Another way is to drop uh, thumb drives by targeted cars in the parking lot of people who you want to gain entry with with your thumb drive that has malware in it. And so that's what some people do. Uh, and as far as Ukraine is concerned, one of the other things the Russians were doing, in 1936 or 7, uh, the Germans uh, attacked uh, uh, Spain and they were trying to use some of their new weaponry that they've been developing, and they wanted to see what they might have to modify. So they used it in Spain before trying it out on the rest of Europe. Uh, and BS, that means before Snowden, the NSA had surveilled Americans in an unlimited way. Uh, phone call metadata, as it is called, uh, that's the time, the place, the who, uh, but the scariest thing is the NSA backdoors in nearly every piece of commercial hardware and software on the market. That meant that they could gain entry to almost anything and any place they wanted to go. Uh, the agency appeared to have acquired a vast library of invisible backdoors into every major app, social media platform, server, router, firewall, antivirus software, iPhone, Android, Android phone, BlackBerry phone, laptop, desktop, and operating system. And I think uh, cases were brought to the Supreme Court and the NSA lost, and they had to back off on some of those things. And that's uh, where the FISA court came in. They had to apply for any time they wanted to listen uh, to somebody's or some uh, outfit's uh, information going back and forth.
Now, nation-state hacking groups are referred to by the insiders as advanced persistent threats rather than hackers. If they were patient and persistent, they would inevitably find a way into that system or individual's computer. Uh, and here's a quote that I thought was pretty good from somebody named Price Pritchard. Organizations can't stop the world from changing. The best that they can do is adapt. The smart ones change before they have to. The lucky ones manage to scramble and adjust when push comes to shove. The rest are losers, and they become history. Well, uh, I'm sure that uh, none of us hope to be the losers, but it's not much that we can do. Now, uh, Nicole and I mentioned uh, the uh, attack on Iran's uh, centrifuges where they were making uh, fissile material, uh, nuclear material that they could possibly use in a bomb. Well, uh, that was at their compound called Natanz. And what they did, uh, which was a pretty good idea, was to keep the computers that were running the uh, centrifuges offline. That means these, this computer was all by itself. It, had, it was not attached to the internet, not attached to anything else. It was what is called air-gapped. That means there was a gap between the online and the offline computers. Uh, but what happened was they had an inside person that somehow or other stuck a thumb drive into that offline computer and downloaded malware that they were then able to use uh, to destroy one-third of the centrifuges that Iran was using to develop their bomb. And Michael Hayden, former head of the NSA, said about Stuxnet, somebody just used a new weapon, and this weapon will not be put back in the box. And that's unfortunate for all of us. Uh, so what, the, uh, what had happened as to why things started to escalate, in the very beginning when a company found out that they had a problem, uh, an error or a gap in their software, they would pay a bounty of 50 to a couple of hundred dollars for hackers to let them know about it so they could fix it, put a patch on. Well... Uh, the money started to escalate when countries like uh, Iran and North Korea, who couldn't catch up to us in cyber warfare, but they could pay to get these zero days, and from there uh, they could build it into something that they could use to attack uh, their enemies or friends that they wanted to listen in on. So... Uh, if you remember, there was a uh, mass shooting in a nightclub in Florida, and the person that perpetrated that was killed, but they had his iPhone, and the FBI wanted someone to uh, get into it uh, because they didn't know what the guy's personal ID number was. And uh, they, in fact, they went to court. Apple would not help. So what happened was they asked around, and somebody got into the iPhone, and the, uh, the FBI supposedly paid them $1.3 million to do that. 
Well, that started to escalate the bounty, and then a whole bunch of different people and operations became bounty hunters, and the the money to do that escalated. And that's why some of the Middle Eastern countries that wanted to keep tabs on some of their dissidents were able to get into some of the elite areas that the U.S. and Russia and China uh, were in because of their huge budgets to be able to do that. Well, they didn't need the whole backup, the uh, supercomputers, to be able to help. That's these other countries. But what they could do is to pay for uh, the entree into uh, some of these uh, software programs and zero days. One of the other things that our security organizations did is that they tapped undersea fiber optic cables of Russia and maybe China, but definitely Russia. Uh, They sent submarines down to pick up the cable, and then they attached a device that was able to tap into that. That's pretty ingenious. Uh, Nicole Nicole traveled all over the world, and it took her seven years to get uh, the uh, trust of the people that she was talking to, so that when they said they didn't want their name mentioned or their accurate description uh, be put in the book, Nicole designed Uh, disguise them both in name and appearance so that uh, the rest of the world wouldn't know who she had been talking to. And she had to do lots of avoidance of tales because some of these organizations wanted to find out who she was meeting with and maybe put a stop to them. And one of the places she went to was Argentina. And the the people that she met down there... uh, she thought were some of the best hackers in the world uh, because they were under military rule and so many people uh, disappeared, as it's put in Argentina. Up to 30,000 men and women went, uh, were picked up by the secret police and they were never seen again. The U.S. still has the largest offensive cyber budget, but compared to conventional weapons exploits, Uh, that was buying the weapons and the exploits and the zero days was a lot cheaper than trying to build a cyber warfare department from scratch. Uh, That's why, uh, as I mentioned just a a minute or two ago, some smaller countries were able to get up into the top tier of cyber warfare organizations because Uh, the oil-rich companies were willing to pay almost anything to get uh, the best zero days and weapons exploits that you could build from a zero day. Uh, So that was the only way some of these operations felt that they could level the playing field uh, with us. Uh, So even countries like the Netherlands were able to penetrate some operations in Russia, and give us an assist on a couple of things that Nicole talks about in her book. And once again, that book is, This is How They Tell Me the World Ends, and it's Nicole Perlroth, who not only wrote the book, but she also writes for the New York Times, and before that, the Wall Street Journal. And then there's Nobus. Nobus is... uh, 
an acronym for Nobody But Us Could Find and Execute on the Vulnerabilities that American Agencies Discover. And my answer to that was, ha. In fact, uh, we mentioned uh, earlier, uh, Nicole and I, uh, the SolarWinds hack, which was the largest hack worldwide ever, and that was just a few years ago. And one of the reasons why is that some operations were able to hack the National Security Agency and to use some of their tools to go and uh, attack other countries and individuals uh, like some of the dissidents that uh, the emirs and the, the Saudis don't like. Uh, uh, let's see. Khashoggi was one of the guys that they were keeping tabs on, and we know what happened to him. Uh, and today, uh, there are so many people working from home that uh, in certain areas, hackers are finding that no one is watching the store, and they could get in a lot easier than they used to be able to get in. So, uh, one of the things I wanted to say is, uh, usually it's... Uh, the good is the, per is the enemy of the perfect. And people look and say that the good isn't good enough, we ought to have the perfect. But when it comes to computer uh, or any device, there's always software in there. And it's sometimes released because they, the companies want to be the first in the market. Well, I think that's my opinion. And that when I was talking to Nicole before we started our on-air conversation, uh, she agreed that companies, uh, software and hardware manufacturers, should develop the best possible software or device before they put it on the market. So there aren't any zero days coming from it, or they're found a lot easier than they thought they could. So here we are. You have been listening to Politics, A Love Story. And our guest has been Nicole Perlroth, author of this is how they tell me the world ends. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you the next time. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.